0: Welcome, Welcome to, the man room. to the Man Room. Welcome to the
1: Man Room. Welcome into the Man Room, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Marcus Bridges. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, you could find us everywhere that you find podcasts, YouTube, Spotify google all the ones go ahead and upvote us five stars thumbs up whatever you do subscribe we really appreciate that and as always you can donate to the show at themanroompodcast.com joining me today is a mathematician and an author of a book called the 10 equations that rule the world and how you can use them to please welcome to the show mr david sumter thanks for joining me today david
0: well thank you very much for having me on i've Never been on a man room before, so I'm very I'm intrigued to see what's gonna happen.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the premise of this show is typically I just invite people in here to uh, have a drink with me and talk about the things that they do that are cool, which uh, for you is a laundry list of things that we'll get to in a moment. Um but since it's eight in the morning, I'm just drinking my ice water this morning uh, where I'm at. so uh, but uh, if you're if you're enjoying a cocktail or something like that where you are totally happy to chat about that, where are you joining us from today? I'm actually, I'm in my office
0: at work at Uppsala University in Sweden and I've, I'm, I'm driving the car home, but I have, I've got to find it in a bit, I've got an alcohol-free beer with me here, so I, I, I knew that, I saw that you had <laughs> you had some drinks, so in a minute I'm going to open up my alcohol-free beer
1: That's great. appreciate that. Well, that's great, well you are officially our very first international guest, so thank you so wow. much for, uh, for coming on from all the way over in Uppsala, Sweden, and um, The book, 10 Equations That Rule the World, and and how you can use them, too, I will be fully honest with you. I I read as much of it as I could. This kind of came together on short notice. Uh, So I've got some notes here that I can't wait to talk to you about. But uh, before we start out, can you just go ahead and let everybody know kind of uh, your field of study, the things that you've done, and other books you've written in the past? Yeah, sure. So...
0: I'm an applied mathematician, and I kind of pride myself in applying mathematics to anything you're interested in. So any problem that's around, I try and use mathematics to solve it. And so I started, I started my career, I did my PhD in mathematics studying honeybees. So how honeybees societies are organized, can we make a mathematical model of them? Then I moved on to making mathematical models of ants and fish and birds and even swarming locusts. And from there, I started to think, well, humans are also kind of interesting animals that you can model. So I've I've, I've looked at um, models of our behavior, um, how we interact with each other, our social behavior, both in real life and online. And from there, I got interested in football, or, or as you call it, soccer. And that's a kind of that's another interactive people interact with each other on the on the sporting field and how can we describe them using mathematics and I wrote the book Sockmatics about that and I've also written a book going back to the human social behavior a book called outnumbered which is all about how mathematics is used by social media companies and so on to manipulate us and control our lives and there's a there's a little bit of that about that in the 10 equations as well but um, that was. My, this is kind of a transition for me into really taking this seriously. How can you use mathematics in your own life to have a better time and to, to sort of both enjoy life and just be a, a better person using maths?
1: Okay, uh, I, have to, I have to admit to you, it's a little bit intimidating to me. My, uh, my senior year in high school, my calculus grade got raised to a C because I found a Texas Instruments 83 plus in the snow. And uh, gave it back to my teacher, and so I'm not the greatest at math. But one thing that I found in college that I did really enjoy was statistics. And it seems mm. to be that you're you're working with quite a bit of statistics here. We'll get into um, the uh, the betting equation, which I can't wait to talk about because uh, you know, as most people, I love to gamble a little bit. Um, but uh, you know. In, in your book in the uh, in the intro and I'm gonna try not to get overwhelmed by the math and if I do and I say something stupid just call me out on it okay because I know no, well, you the time should, you should show. go for
0: it that's what I'm here for
1: <laughs> all right perfect so uh in in your intro in the book um, well actually first of all before I get that far why did you write the 10 equations um just what do you hope that uh, somebody like me who's bad at math that just picks it up trying to help myself out in life what do you hope that I get out of it
0: let me let me uh, yeah, let me answer this first because first you asked me why I wrote it, and then yes. then you said what do, what do I help you. I, th- I think I think it's like this. I, there's a lot of self-help books out there, and you you see this quite a lot. And then a few years ago, I read Jordan Peterson's book, The Twelve Rules that uh, and and that is kind of that the aim of that book. And um, we're in the man room. It was definitely aimed at men that particular book. My book I hope is a bit broader than that. But and the rules in that. They just seemed to me to be 12 completely random rules that he'd come up with. And then he says, well, I'm a professor and he kind of motivates them based on his experience and so on. But they didn't seem to have any kind of sort of logical structure to them. They would just seem to be 12 random rules. And so I thought, you know, I can actually do better than this because maths is all about trying to find solutions to everyday problems. And so then I thought, and this answer your question about like, you know, how it relates to you. I thought, as an average person, as a normal person who might read one of these books, what can I give them from mathematics? What sort of tools have I got that I've learned from working with mathematics that I can sort of hand over to anybody, the man in the street, that will help them improve their life in various ways? And can I do it better than Jordan Peterson? And those were that, that, so that was my ambition there.
1: Well, that's great, and and first of all, for me and every other guy on the street that's not very good at math, thank you because uh, <laughs> um, you you have a very good way of explaining things. I really enjoyed the way that when you are about to lay out one of your um, one of your equations, you kind of tell some stories that surround mm. how that equation kind of came to be, and it, it's so interesting to me. Um, you're talking about the ten, which is you know what you call your ten equations, and um, how people across the world use these equations every day to continue to kind of compile their success. Um, yeah. Can you give a few examples of, of people that, you know, if you can name names, great. If not, uh, you know, you, you can use uh, generalities, but can you talk about some examples of people that might use these equations to be very successful in life?
0: Absolutely. So one of the stories I start with is, you mentioned this, the betting equation, and those are two guys, Marius and Jan, and they were two students who came actually to visit me, and they sat in, not in this office, I had another office at the time, but they basically came to my department, and they were interested, how could they use maths to make money on the betting markets? And they were, and they knew that I'd worked previously in soccer, so they decided to work on, on soccer, and what we, what I showed them, or what we worked with, was a, a quite a simple mathematical equation and it's equation two in the US version of the book um, called logistic regression. And what you do is you take the odds of the results of particular football matches and you try to find a small bias in those odds and you can earn money based on this. And so there's quite a lot of people, I wouldn't say there's lots of people actually, there's a small group of people like Marius and Jan who use these principles when they do their online betting They collect lots and lots of data. They use mathematical principles and they can earn money um, by betting. And most of us, if you're not using these principles, you're losing all your money. And Marius and Jan, they're going to the bank and they're collecting all of that money. And those guys, I mean, they were just starting out. They they ended up the year after they earned 800,000 euros using this uh, technique. But they're still small fry. You know, I talk a little bit about people like Matthew Benham who works for Smart Odds or he owns Smart Odds in the, in the UK. And they're making lots and lots of money, uh, making millions of, of dollars on this. And I also, there's horse, I talk about William Bentner as well, who worked on this in horse racing. And what I found fascinating, and that, that's one of the kind of key things in the book, what I found fascinating is that the methods to do this, they're available, You can just download the articles. You can find out how people have done it. They've described them. Bentner wrote this very nice description of how he won millions and millions of dollars on the races. And you can implement them, but you've got to know the code. And that's where the idea of 10 comes in. So 10 is this secret organization of people like me who've learned the code and can read these articles and start to use them in order to make money in lots of different different areas.
1: Okay, and so does the 10 have like uh, like secret society meetings under candlelight in some uh, you know, brick building in the woods or is it uh, mostly just well, kind it, of a loosely organized group? Yeah, it's a, loose, it's
0: a loosely organized thing, right? So, I mean, this was a revelation for me. I'd never thought that I was part of a secret organization, but when I started writing the book and started getting into it, I realized that that's really what it is. It's not that there's, it's not that maths is hidden in some way that you can't find it written down. You can find it all written down, you can find these secrets, but you have to have just done that little bit of extra work in order to get into it and really get going with the subject in order to understand everything that it's got hidden. So so it is an organization, we can talk to each other, but it's kind of sort of hidden in plain sight. So everything is presented there. You can download everything on the internet, but you have to, and ignore all the noise on the internet and just get to those key mathematical articles which can help you be successful. I mean to give another example it's, it's nice to give concrete examples of this so Google of course massive companies So now we're moving from million dollar equations in betting to billion or even trillion dollar companies. Google used a piece of the, the, the guys who set it up Larry Page and uh, Sergey Brin what they did is they used a 100-year-old piece of mathematics in order to solve the problem of finding information on the internet. Wow! And then they made a patent for that equation. It's equation six in the book, five in the book, equation five. They, we call it the influencer equation. What they did is they got a patent on that. And I think when the patent was owned by Stanford, and Stanford sold that for 350 million um or they or they got 350 million dollars of google shares for that patent <laughs> which turns so out to be way more than one equation yeah. can could give you so much money
1: yeah well and, and i think it's interesting that you you said uh you know that jan and marius are still kind of small fish with eight hundred thousand euros the difference mm-hmm. being that the other guy that you talked about that owns smart odds bought a, mm. a soccer team if i'm not yeah mistaken, exactly right? so mean, um in fact there's
0: there's two of them um um now i've forgotten the name of the other one but there's ben they both begin with b benham and uh, uh, yeah you have to read the book yes so they they own they each own their own soccer team so one owns brighton and the other one owns brentford and so yeah <laughs> you, you you can make a lot and, and of course and that's the that's the key if you're really into this gambling thing and you know what you're doing you don't spend that much time doing the gambling in the end you buy a bookmaker's because you move on to that side of, of the thing but even even before then you can start off if you know enough if you know enough maths you can get started um, by making a bit of money doing the gambling
1: sure and I want to tell all my degenerate gambling friends that may be listening to this podcast that this is something that kind of encompasses making a lot of small bets or a lot of bets and yeah. not necessarily small it's it all depends on your budget but um this is not something where you go out and you pull the trigger once and everything changes no. in your life. This is a perpetual thing that goes on over time, right? I think it's
0: it's it's a really good point because I get a lot of questions from friends, you know, they're like can you give me some betting tips then David? And then I tell them, well, okay, Liverpool are playing Norwich at the weekend. Put some money on Liverpool to win. And Liverpool are the strong favorites. Odds are like, you know, you'll get 10 cents back on a dollar bet. And they go, yeah, that's a, that's not a very good. Thing. Not, no one's <laughs> interested in making that bet. It's no fun, you know. So, and and as you say, Yana Mario they set up an automated system which place the bets automatically. Um, I can give. I mean, there's a, a few tips. I think, I think if if you're interested in winning money by gambling and you're not doing it professionally using mathematics, you're just not. It's just not going to happen for you. It's, it really isn't going to happen because of this doing the small bets. But a few things you can do if you want to not not lose money as fast is you can make sure that you use multiple bookmakers so you don't you do actually pay attention to what the odds are. and um, you can bet longer away from the match on the best odds you're you're more likely to do well. So there's a few sort of basic tricks that you can use. But uh, other than that, no, you've got to be really professional about it.
1: Yeah, we're not saying calves and four here. There, you know, it's it's not that kind of bet. It's a it's a mathematical equation, and that's why it's so interesting to me to read through um, the chapter on the betting equation. As somebody that really enjoys gambling, not mm. so much on sports, but on uh, you know, I, I like to play blackjack. I love craps. I love poker. I'm a big card player. Um, but you know, once I was in Vegas with a uh, with a German guy during the World Cup, and it just so happened to be 2014. Uh, so mm. a really good year for me to follow that dude and lay all my money on Germany, and and it worked. <laughs> um, but I have to say that it seems just based on your uh, just based on what I read of the book that uh, your equation probably works out to be uh, more successful over time than just follow my German friend. So yeah, it, it will be. I mean,
0: you see, the thing is that. One thing you have to remember is if you go down to Vegas with four of your friends, right? And what will happen is that one of you, and I write about this in the book, one of you will probably make some money. And then you'll come home and you'll tell your story, you know, in this case it's you, you followed the German guy, you made some money, you're very happy and you tell everybody that story. Those are the stories you remember. The three guys who lost their money They've forgotten about it, you know? Right. And uh, the person who wins the money, they buy drinks, and everyone's happy, and that's what happens. But everyone's forgotten the fact that you're actually as likely to lose money. Next time you go down to Vegas, you'll maybe bump into a Spanish guy or something, and they'll get knocked out the the (laughs) cup, and, um, you know, that's it. So...
1: Yeah, well, let's just say I'm never following my American buddies around during the World Cup, okay, because they don't help at all. Uh, but, so um, that's that's great. So have you ever studied anything like blackjack? I mean, you know, we talk about gambling here. I see blackjack, best odds for me to win and take home money, smallest house edge. Um, there's been movies like 21, which was based on uh, uh, bringing down the house, the book that was written in the early 2000s. Um, that mm. talk about, you know, um, basically card counting is, is what it is, and casinos frown upon it. But have you ever studied that game at all?
0: Um, I haven't studied that. One thing that, one thing I've looked at a little bit is roulette. And there's a famous story of physicists, and this has been repeated a few times by different groups of physicists. What they've done is they've gone into the casino and they've clicked as the roulette wheel goes around. They have something in their foot, where they sort of click okay. as the roulette wheel goes around which side it's on and then it will give you a slightly better prediction of which side of the roulette wheel the, the ball is going to land on. This is also something that of course all the casinos are trying <laughs> to stop anyone doing and they've got metal detectors and everything to, to stop doing that but again you know roulette you lose Um, one out of 37 times you'll lose basically on the, because that's where the the loss is always going to be. So that on average, you're always down one out of 37, but if you can get that edge, if you can predict slightly better than one out of 37, then you'll end up on the right side. Again, the casinos have, they have a tiny margin over you because they want, they wanted you to win a few times. So it doesn't look too bad before you start losing. So they have this tiny margin, but you will, you will lose over time.
1: Yeah. I love how they like to just, they like to pat you on the, on the head just a little bit and make you feel like you're really good at whatever you're doing. And then they rip that carpet out from under you. And here I am, you know, I always say this to my friends when I'm gambling, there's one place that I always win and it's at the ATM. I know the code for that one. So I can definitely, uh, I can definitely hang there. Um, You know, further in on the betting equation, um, I I have to ask you, this is something I wrote down here at the bottom Mm -hmm. when it started. Was it agonizing to call it soccer for a a European uh, like yourself? Because I know you use the term soccer a lot. And like you said at the beginning, you know, that's an American thing. It's football where you guys are. Um, was Was that tough for you to kind of shake yourself? Because I'm sure you called it football your entire upbringing.
0: No, exactly. No, I did. I
1: did call it football.
0: It's not actually quite as true as people think. I know that um, this is often said, and a lot of British people say, oh, you should call it football and not soccer. But in the 60s and 70s, we still use the word soccer in in the UK. It just died in the 80s and 90s and on onwards. So you can actually find old books written in the 60s and 70s where they talk about soccer. And the reason the reason I um, and then there's two things to say also here is the you've got the american version of the 10 equations that rule the world right right so there it says soccer the the words i wrote in the english version there it says football so there's actually been a translation you've got the translated (laughs) version so you can understand what i'm talking about you know they they had to they had to do do this new version Uh, but but also the the, one of the reasons i use the Word soccer a lot is because my first book was called Soccermatics. Yes, and Footballmatics doesn't quite work as a word. Footballmatics doesn't doesn't have that same ring to it. So yes. Soccermatics had a had a better ring. So yeah, there's there's lots of there's lots of sides to the word soccer and a lot of history to it. I,
1: I had no idea that that was uh, that that was something that was employed in the in the UK. I had never heard that before. I really thought it was one of those us dumb American things. To be honest with you, yeah, me, I, so. did, I think it was
0: actually when. It was only when soccer came to the US and you started playing it, you know, when you started the league with Pele and so on. Yes. Then we saw your well, they're using the word soccer, right? That's that's it gone. It's gone <laughs> out of the English vocabulary then. <laughs>
1: I do want to mention the American version of the book out August 24th, so make sure to support uh, the Man Room's guest. Buy that book on Amazon or anywhere else you can buy books. Um, I'm definitely going to keep reading it. I am am so intrigued, and I'm learning things uh, as we go. I I really did enjoy uh, the chapter on the judgment equation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about what the judgment equation is and how people can sort of apply it to their daily life. You used a really good example of a student in, uh, in class. And, and I loved that because we all went through college and how awkward that is. I came from a school where I graduated with 40 people to a school where there was 20,000. And mm. it, was a, it was a shock to me. And had I, had I read your book beforehand, I might have fared a little bit better on the social market, I'll be honest.
0: <laughs> yeah I think I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll do that example I'm, I'm going to do the example more in in kind of my everyday life so the, the example here is like you have started a new job and you have this colleague who um, maybe it's your boss right so you've got your boss and your boss starts off on you, you hear him say something quite nasty about you on the first day and so the question is is your boss an asshole or not And you want to use maths to work out if this new person you've met who's done something not very nice is an asshole. And what you do is the following. You think, right, okay, how many assholes are there in the world? And you have a percentage assholes, right? That you're just going to meet if you just meet a random new person, how many, how likely are they to be an asshole? And let's say that there's a 5% chance that a person, is so one in 20 people is an asshole, right? And then, so that means 19 out of 20 are nice people, 95%. Now, assholes, they do nasty things 50% of the time. You know that Sometimes they can have a good day now and again, but pretty much 50% of the time they're doing asshole things. And so this guy said something nasty, um, made some sort of comment about your work the first day. Um, and then, so they, they, 50% of the time, assholes will do that. But nice people, we also make mistakes. So let's say that one in 10 chance that a nice person like yourself might talk behind someone's back or do something that's not so, so good. And so you've got one in 10, right? So the five people who are assholes, 50% chance that um, they do something bad. That's 2.5 people over here. Now the nice people, we've got 95 of them and a one in 10 chance that they do something bad. So that's 9.5 people over here. So 9.5 people here versus 2.5 people here. This means that there's actually just a one in five chance That's 2.5 divided by 9.5 plus 2.5, which is roughly one in five. There's a one in five chance that this person who's done something nasty to you on the first day is an asshole. Four in five chance they're a nice person. And so this is what maths tells you. Maths tells you you should be more forgiving. You should be nicer to the people. If somebody does something bad to you, the chances are they've made a mistake. If they start doing two things, three things, maybe three things is where you start to worry about it then you might draw the conclusion, but you should be forgiven in the first instance.
1: So the judgment equation kind of tells us that uh, that we should be less quick to cut ties, less quick to judge people on on their behavior and maybe um, inherently believe that the world is a good place and there's more good people than bad, which is one of the the things that I really liked about it because I, I, I do think a lot of the times as, as humans, especially in today's society, we're quick to rush to judgment um, we don't like to, mm. to hear bad things about ourselves, so we're quick to write somebody off if they might be saying something. But that, that bad day part of thing accounts for so much more of the equation than what you really think it does because, I, I mean, I could count on both hands and probably run out of fingers the amount of bad days I've had over the last <laughs> six months, you know, maybe three. It's, I, I'll also say this. I, I dabble in stand-up comedy, so a lot of the times I feel like I'm a coin flip for all these things, you know, 50-50 <laughs> for me across the board. Um, but I I really enjoyed the way that you you uh, talked through the judgment equation. Now, here's here's a tough question. I don't know if you'll be able to Mm -hmm. to quantify this, but how would we use the judgment or the logic behind the judgment equation for random events like you know, Karen's are really popular right now? We've got a Karen on the web every day, you know, freaking out at a supermarket on social media, or maybe a road rage incident where you you Mm -hmm. accidentally cut somebody off and they really lose it. How do we apply the judgment uh, equation in those scenarios to our benefit?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, there it's even worse, right? Because the person, if you've got some sort of Karen incident or something that's been shown on on YouTube or shared on the Snapchat or whatever, then there's a real bias in there. If that person, the hundred days that that person has done something nice and not on film, right? Right. It's only filmed and put up there because they've done something idiotic. right? And that's what tends to happen. There's a kind of bias in the sampling. And so we see that thing, we draw a conclusion about that person, but that conclusion is very often going to be wrong. This person might do these types of things one day in a hundred, one day in a thousand. Yeah, they might do them every day, but they're up there because they've done a particular thing. And the judgment equation will... Tell you, you should pretty much forgive anybody, well, unless it's a terrible crime or anything like that. But you should forgive people for a transgression, and the fact that those transgressions are are up on the internet is just because they were something interesting that people wanted to look at, not because this person is actually somebody who does them does them regularly. And I think, I mean, another example I always think of is like arguing with people on the internet. You know, I'm on Twitter a lot and you see some sort of idiotic comment. And it's very easy to like quickly react and think, "Oh, i right, I'm gonna argue with this person, call them an idiot. How could they possibly write that type of thing? Often it's a misunderstanding about how they've expressed themselves. Often they were just in a bad mood. Often they're drunk. <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's a lot of problems with different time zones. You know, you're yep. sitting there on a, you know, you're there in the morning, I'm in the evening. I'm a, be going to start drinking in a bit. And uh, like, I might be starting to write things and you see something I write, like it's 10 o'clock in the evening with me, it's lunchtime with you, I write one thing and you can react to it. So there's, I think, I think we just have to, we have to be more forgiving in these types of situations and just give people the benefit of the doubt.
1: And, and there's some history behind this, too. This is something that, uh, that um, and I, I actually didn't write his first name down because I didn't do good homework, but the Bayes rule. This has been around yes. since when? And can you talk a little bit about the Bayes rule and kind of the origin behind this judgment equation? Yeah,
0: it, it's very important for me to emphasize this quite, quite a lot, that all these equations, you know, I said the Google one is 100 years old. The Bayes one, we're getting onto 250 years old. And Bayes, he, he was a reverend, he was a. Um, he lived in London and he was a reverend. And it was originally used as a, it wasn't used as a proof that miracles exist, but um, Bayes' uh, Richard Price, who was, he wrote up Bayes' work after Bayes died. Richard Price was very interested in arguments about miracles. If somebody tells you something incredible has happened, um, should you just, Tell them that you're out of your out of their mind. And remember, this is before the internet and a lot of scientific knowledge, but should you just dismiss if somebody tells you a miracle has occurred, should you just dismiss them? And a lot of people argued, well, yes, you should, because miracles don't occur very often. But what he pointed out is that it's not a miracle unless it doesn't occur very often, right? Okay. So all miracles by definition don't occur very often. And so when they do occur, you can't just if somebody's told you one of the occurred, you can't just say, well, they don't occur very often because we already know that. You have to weigh in the probability that this particular um, uh, this particular miracle occurred, given that those uh, miracles don't occur very often. So any kind of logical argument against miracles becomes circular. And so he said, well, there may be our miracles. I think today we don't think there's miracles, <laughs> but he used Bayes. He used the kind of logic of mathematics in order to address arguments about frequencies of things
1: did you find the, the
0: example i mean the, the example he had which was very nice i think is, is will the sun rise tomorrow you know so we've seen it rise every day but we don't actually know just from that information that the sun will rise tomorrow a nice one is like for a turkey for example every day up to is it the 4th of 4th of November, when is it you have your, uh, when is it you eat turkey? Oh, so and, it's uh,
1: going to be the the last Thursday in November, the third Thursday in November. So normally like the 24th between the 27th, sometime around in there. Yeah. So for a turkey, every day is updating and updating, thinking, you know, life's getting better
0: and better. I'm getting fatter and fatter <laughs> there. Feed me all this and <laughs> then, then, <laughs> then uh, he's gone. So you have to be careful how you use different types of information. And Bayes Rule is all about integrating and building up on the events that's happened to you, trying to work out the probability that something will happen in the future.
1: Do you find in your research for these equations that a lot of times they are um, kind of intertwined with religion in a lot of ways like that? Like from, you know, back 250, 300 years ago, uh, there was a lot more religion that was kind of prevalent for running things. Do you, do you find that it found its way into yeah. the math and science equations and it's kind of we've been working to kind of separate the two for the last few hundred years or, or what do you no, say exactly station? and
0: i think i think a lot of how the maths has developed has been is is kind of captured in this change of religious beliefs so a lot of the people who were doing this 250 years ago they were very religious and and they saw maths as perfection and they saw maths as a religious type of perspective you know God. And this goes back even to Plato, to the Greeks, that God gave us this perfection, which is mathematics, and we are imperfect versions of that mathematics. And I I look at this in the book is that it evolved away from that. So as we became more and more aware of empirical data, which contradicted uh, the existence of God, or at least that God had to be separated away from anything to do with empirical data, Mm then and mathematics became more and more empirical. We, we saw a switch from mathematicians as being quite religious actually, to being completely the opposite and really kind of using mathematics all of the time to, to dismiss any sort of religion idea. And in, in the book I talk about what we call the logical positivism, positivism philosophy. And that separates everything we see into empirical data, into mathematical models, and into nonsense. And so the last thing is like nonsense data, things that don't come from our senses. And so you would really put God into that category. And it's separate. So now you can talk about God, but you have to keep it separate from anything to do with empirical data, things that you can see around you, or mathematics, which is reasoning, and so on. So there's sort of three different categories that we work with. And most people in in 10 in this organization they work primarily with these two and pretty much ignore the kind of
1: religious area of it. Sure. Probably helps a little bit to uh, cut down on the headaches, I would imagine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think there was what's interesting is I have this nonsense category, and our sci- often science is put against, you know, it's science versus religion and so on. But that nonsense also encompasses a lot of other things that we say and do. A lot of our overcome... Your, your story... I'm I'm sorry to say this, but your story about the German and the Las Vegas thing, you know, that's a nonsense story in in the mathematicals. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's fun. It's a lovely story, but the mathematician isn't really going to be that interested in it, you know?
1: Right. (laughs) If I can say anything about that Vegas trip, nonsense is the best it's ever been described. All right. There was 14 (laughs) of us. It was wild. So you're actually not hurting my feelings at all. Totally on board with that. (laughs) Uh, So as we as we move through a little bit, I've got to kind of jump around here because I wrote some things down and I totally skipped Mm -hmm. over them just as uh, in the course of conversation. But um, you talk about in the uh, judgment equation chapter about movies of possible scenarios playing out in your head. And you call those those models. And I have to admit, this is you. You were describing something that happens to me on a on an, an every minute basis every day. Every conversation, mm. this conversation that you and I are having right now, I've played out 15 to 20 times in my head since yesterday afternoon. It's going nothing like what I thought, which is the way that it always <laughs> goes. Um, and, and and I just, I always thought, well, I'm just an overly analytical person. I just do that because mm. it helps me cut back on my anxiety and it helps me, um, you know, formulate at least a roadmap for what might happen. And while I can't account for all the variables, I can at least go over a few of them in my head and, and wonder if maybe it's going to turn out that way. And I've been right, you know, a handful of times in my life, but can you talk about as, as you approach it as a mathematician, how do you deal with those movies that play out in your head and how do you use them to your benefit uh, in applying things like the judgment equation?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a excellent, excellent question. I, I really uh, writing that part of the, the book describing how we think about things was really important to me because in mathematics we we have a word for it, we call it the model. So when you're playing out our discussion in the future or when in the book I talk about, you know, thinking about an aeroplane crash or something. So often when I'm on an aeroplane, I know it's not gonna crash, but I still envisage the whole process of this horrible thing happening. And each of those things are a model. And mathematics is a way of actually formalizing these models and turning them into equations and making predictions on the basis of them. And now what's important is you don't actually have to think that the model is true in order for it to be useful. So if you're thinking about the, and I take it with the example of the asshole boss, is he an asshole, isn't he an asshole, there's two models of the world there, right? And what you're doing, always trying to do is separate between the two of them, trying to work out which of those models is true and which of them is false, or actually which, which is more likely than the other. So when you're thinking through some of the discussions that we might have, and I'm sorry I've messed it all up by taking oh, it
1: the different direction. This is so much but, better than anything I thought of, don't worry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there you go. You already had a judgment that I might not have been in, as interesting as you thought I would be, so. <laughs> but um, no, they're, they're basically, you, you're trying to play out these different models and think how you can respond to them. And that's what mathematics is about a lot of the time. It's like thinking through what could happen under different scenarios and trying to work out the like the consequences of them, good or bad, and the likelihood of those those types of things happening. So I do it both in the formal way, and I think we should all we should all enjoy or we should all try and do it in the informal way as well, that we we think about these things. And one thing I bring up that I think is really important is it's not it's not a problem to have bad thoughts in the sense that, Some of these scenarios might not be the nicest of things. You might wish bad things on other people. And what's important there is that you can have those models in your head, but you have to begin to separate out both the consequences of them and the probability of them being true. And so I kind of try and go back to that idea. Certainly have a wide variety of models of the world, but in the end, try and focus on the empirical data, what happens to you in order to work out what is the correct model.
1: Is that a, a a fundamental difference in the way you, as a as a mathematician, uh, view the world as as opposed to somebody like a simpleton like myself might view it? Is it? you're seeing just data all the time, and is that is that true by any means, or, or can you kind of talk me through that a yeah. little bit and how a mathematician just views the world at, at large? It's, it's, it's really interesting you say this because when <laughs> I when I when I'm writing the where,
0: yeah. So obviously I got a book contract to write the book and I just sort of wrote down how I approach the world. And, and I just thought that was how everybody approached the world, to be <laughs> honest, you don't know. You don't know. Before you start writing down how you approach the world, you don't know how other people do it. And like the publishers are like, this is amazing. You know, this is really insightful. You should write more about this and tell us some more. And I'm just like writing down how I think about various things. So so I think, I think, yeah, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say that, and what's important also there with that kind of thing is that it's not that I'm a sort of cold and unemotional person. So I think many people think of like mathematics as a very sort of cold way of seeing the world, that you you work out all of these rational things. Now, I certainly do spend some of my time doing it, but I also let lots of different ideas come into my head, which I work through in a more rational way. So pick out which is a good one to take, which is a bad one to take. So. I work in both ways that I have kind of a much more emotional way of seeing the world and I allow that to come in and then I use the rationality to maybe process through some of those things. And maybe I make the emotional decision in the end as well, you know, I'm not saying that I always make the, the rational decision, but I certainly will have processed through it and I'll have started to think what's data, what data is available to me in order to make these types of decisions.
1: Yeah, I, I think I'm gonna take a page out of your book and and try the uh, try to kind of filter through things a little bit. I do have a tendency to kind of wear my emotions on my sleeve and be a uh, I don't you know I don't have a real temper or anything like that. But um, mm. sometimes I won't let's just say I won't play through enough scenarios before I'll find my answer, which I don't think mm. is necessarily the best way to go. Uh, but I will say this too: it, it, you're anything but but a but a cold and boring mathematician. Uh, it's it's present in the book once. Once again, the way that you tell the stories, I watched uh, your TEDx talk from Uppsala University. Uh, It's just a short Mm. video on YouTube. But uh, you have you have a levity to your to your way of describing things that I think makes it easy for the common person to relate to. And I I think that's really important. I I don't I don't like to talk poorly about anyone that's ever taught me anything. But I had some professors in college that I feel like if they were just a little bit happier to be there once in a while, (laughs) maybe it would have been a more engaging course and rather not something that was so hard for me to, to key into. And, um, your, your ability to be relatable is I feel like probably one of the best qualities for a guy like yourself, who is so smart in something that's pretty complicated to the common person.
0: Well, thanks. That's, That's really, well, that's really nice to hear. That's a really nice compliment because and and I think I had to learn that as well. I think, you know, in my private life, maybe I was quite a relatable and open person. But when you start teaching, there's a kind of pressure on you. And you you have those, you have those 300, you know, I often t- teach in front of 300 students. and You have them all looking at you. They're all judging you. And you feel that you have to be like a little bit more formal or something like that. And you have to be very serious. And I, maybe I did that when I first started teaching, but I learned quite quickly that as long as you give something of yourself and you sort of make yourself a little bit vulnerable, then they're going to respect that vulnerability as well, that the students are actually going to, they're not going to take advantage of that entirely. They might take advantage of it a little bit, but they're not (laughs) going to take advantage of that entirely. They're actually going to respect that as well. And so I try to always give a bit of myself in, in, in what I do. And also, I mean, another thing is uh, I say this quite a lot is that, I wasn't like some sort of mathematical genius at school. You know, I was good, I, 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 didn't, get, I didn't get a C, I actually got a B in maths in, in, uh, when I, I graduated high school. So I wasn't like, you know, I was one of the better kids, that, but I wasn't like absolute best. And I just got so interested in how you could use it in various different ways. And so it really genuinely comes from this engagement in how you can, how you can use mathematics to understand the world Rather than it coming from like I'm very good at solving equations, I'm pretty bad at solving <laughs> equations compared to a lot of my colleagues, to be honest. Um, and I'm not very good at arithmetic, but I love the way that you can sort of take maths and you can start to take a new angle in in on things.
1: So, uh, can you tell me uh, you've done a lot of work with animals? Uh, we mentioned mm. it just briefly uh, earlier in the show. Um, what's the most interesting thing that you found? You mentioned so many different animals that you've worked with and studied and and their patterns and everything. And Mm. uh, not to go away from the 10 equations, but I'm just a fascinated guy by animals. And I was looking at some of the work you've done with ants. What Mm. totally blew your mind in your work uh, leading up to the 10 equations when you were studying animals? Wow.
0: I, 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 Loads of things blew my mind, but yeah. um, Anything one thing that I'd love out. to tell you about because we were thinking that you asked me about gambling earlier and, and slot machines. Ants are geniuses at playing slot machines, right? Really? <laughs> so, <laughs> in the in the following sense, so what they what they can do is if you give them two different food sources, you give them one food. They love sugar, so you give one slightly stronger sugar here and one slightly weaker sugar there, and they. They come up, each ant will come up and it will kind of sample round and it will get an idea of how good the sugar is. And then it will go back to the nest and it will tell the other ants and they'll follow over to this one, to to the one with the best one. And what ants are incredibly good at doing is finding out which of these slot machines, these sugar slot machines, are giving them the best food. And as soon as you switch it round, they quickly can switch around and they can find the best one. So us humans, we just tend to like, shoot off in one direction. Oh, everyone's going over there. You know, we just get stuck over there. But the ants are incredibly good using, they have all sorts of chemical communications. They use at least two pheromones to do this, wow. to show each other where they should be going. They have a stop pheromone, which they stop going over there. They have different long lasting pheromones to say how long it's been a good, a good food source. And we did so many cool experiments with ants. We got them to, do you know the towers of Hanoi problem? So the Towers of Hanoi problem, you have three pegs and you have some flat um, things that you put on top of the pegs. I don't know if you know this problem. I don't. Uh, you, you, have to, you have to move the pegs from one side to the other. Anyway, oh. you, can, you can convert this particular problem into a graph, which is a maze that the ants will solve. And so we gave the ants this maze to solve. And by solving this maze, they were doing the mathematically equivalent thing of solving this quite difficult problem where you have to move move things between that most, <laughs> most humans can't solve. <laughs> so we could get ants to solve so many different types of problems. And they're, they're so good at it and they work so hard. And they're all female as well. That's quite important to mention on the man room, which I don't know is a relevant attribute here. But, Everybody's uh, welcome
1: they, in the man room, female ants included. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so they, they, um, yeah, there was, there was so many things. And, and we looked at how bird flocks, for example, how they all change direction at the same time. And they do that just by um, looking at your five or six nearest neighbours. So you can get a flock of 10,000 birds. They just see five or six nearest neighbours all moving and changing in the direction, same direction or changing direction at the same time by just observing those nearby neighbours.
1: It's, it's amazing when you watch a big flock of, of, you know, you'll see them sometimes over the fields out here when we're driving along I-5 uh, in Oregon, mm. and there royal be, like you said, 10,000, and they move like a school of fish in the sky, and it, it's always yeah. really stumped me, and I know that you've done some some research in how schools of fish can move and detect predators as well in the same way, correct? Yeah, exactly. So
0: we'd frighten, we'd, we'd frighten the fish at one point and then what we'd see is a sort of wave pass through all of them. So exactly as you said, if, if, if one fish, if you have the predator at one point, one fish sees the predator, which is another bigger fish, of course, and then it will change direction, the next neighbor changes direction, and they all just quickly move away from that predator. And that's what you see, and we, we studied this in detail in the lab, but that's what you see in these big nature programs, where the sharks are coming in at all sides, and the fish are kind of moving away. And then the sharks have evolved different tactics in order to kind of come in two at the same time to push them in two different directions. You actually see this a lot with dolphins, for yes. example. Dolphins go around the fish, coordinate, and uh, bring them in together. There's just so much amazing... that What the, the focus was in a lot of this, this work, and I, I come. I actually look at. I talk a little bit about this in the book as well, in, in chapter eight. But the focus of what we were trying to do is we we're trying to show that simple rules followed by these animals, just react to your neighbor, will actually end up with very intelligent group solutions to problems. Um, and we see that we see sometimes they get it right. I mean, we see it in humans as well sometimes as i mentioned with the sort of flocking we all flock off in the wrong direction <laughs> but sometimes our collective behavior manages to get it right
1: yeah if a, if a cardi b concert isn't in an uh, example of us all flocking in the wrong direction i don't know what is to be honest <laughs> with you um <clears throat> so that's that's so crazy and i i always have kind of wondered about that when you see the birds and the fish move you mentioned dolphins i, I don't know how extensively you've worked with dolphins i was fortunate enough Uh, by a complete fluke in Hawaii one time to swim with a school of spinner dolphins that came up and joined the boat. And the one thing I can say about dolphins from just a purely, um, just kind of a sensitive standpoint where I was just trying to feel everything around me, I felt more safe with the school of these wild animals out in the wide open ocean than I felt when I was with my instructor scuba diving on the uh, the seafloor. You know, I, I I don't know why it was, but I just felt something intuitive and something very familiar swimming amongst mm. amongst a bunch of dolphins, and all they had us do was just put on your flippers, put on your snorkel, swim in a straight line, and they come up and swim next to you. It's just the weirdest thing. And I don't yeah. know if there's anything mathematical about it. I just know that you talk about mind-blowing moments with animals. That one is I, one never, for me. Yeah, I've,
0: I, that that sounds amazing experience. I mean, I've uh, yeah, I've experienced many animals, but I've never been swimming with dolphins. So I yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. I that they, just sounds incredible.
1: They were spinner dolphins too. So they when they jump, they kind of spin, you know. And and they had uh, the little babies with them, and they don't they don't come out of the womb knowing how to spin like that. So mm. it was like watching X games, athletes and then amateur skateboarders, you know, cause they would just kind of go sideways in the air and crash. And, and, but like I said, just, just one of the coolest feelings and, and one of the most, um, I don't even, I don't want to use the word spiritual because I feel like that's strange, but it was just one of the best experiences of my life. And that's one of the reasons your work with animals fascinates me so much is because I feel like we're, we barely scratched the surface as far as understanding what's actually going on with, uh, with the population of animals, be they elk, deer, dolphins, turtles, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I, I definitely,
0: I definitely believe that. And, and I think, I mean, I'm always saying that there should be more research on on these types of questions, and there should be more chances for people to work with, work together with animals and work out how they think about the world and how they view the world. A lot of, a lot of what I worked at was exactly on this question of like how simple interactions between individuals could produce group behavior. When you think about dolphins, they have very intelligent interactions with each other, actually. And one direction that, this research has been going in more recently. I, I'm not working so many with animals, is so much with animals anymore. But one thing that you, we've, we've definitely been underestimating the intelligence of different animals is that they, we see every, I see every week actually, there's a new research thing where we've shown that crows have theory of mind and just each animal is much more clever than we actually give them, give them uh, credit for.
1: Yeah. My wife used to work at a coffee shop and there was a crow that they had named that would come every day and they would feed it little, you know, whatever snacks they had nuts or whatever they could put out there that they thought was safe for it. And it started Mm. bringing them shiny things, whatever it may be. It would bring a screw. Sometimes it would bring just a little trinket that it would find that was shiny and it would leave it there and then sit Mm. there and wait for the food. And I mean that, that in and of itself, you know, that's happening time and time over again. And if a crow's that smart, man, it seems like there's a lot that we could learn from that, you know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, we definitely can. I mean, even, you know, ants are, ants are my big role model, <laughs> not even dolphins. Ants are just incredible about how they, they organize their society and how they just, I mean, I don't, I don't think we should all just be completely conformist like ants are, <laughs> but I think a few things about our society could be better organized if we, if we look to the ants, how they build together, how they sort of fill in if if um we often think of ants as being specialized in different tasks but what happens is if one ant dies or one ant gets lost another ant will fit in its place and start learning how to do its job and ants are very flexible about the different things that they do they're incredible they're incredible creatures So everything everything is a Yeah. Everything about them.
1: I mean the strength of an ant, the relative strength compared to a human and the things that they can lift. You know, you see an ant just like dragging something across the floor, and you're like, that can't be light and easy, but they don't seem to have a problem with it.
0: Yeah, so one of my colleagues, what he did is they got this very sensitive device that could measure the pressures on it. So it was a kind of little circle with little bits coming out of it. And they put it down and then they get the ants to pull it. And the ants would like take it back because it was covered in sugar. Ants are just obsessed with sugar. Mm-hmm. They, they, they took the, they'd pull it back and you could measure the pressures that it was, was being applied to it. And what they do is that they find, well, if they were not applying a pressure that would help move it, they'd move to another place. And so quite quickly they coordinate, see if they were being effective. It's not like when we're trying to move everything, you know, you're trying to tell me, lift it this way. I'm trying to say, lift it that way. And someone else, and then our wives are shouting at us they'd actually like efficiently without talking to each other move their positions around and find the better way of moving this object back to the nest
1: i'm i'm going to show my wife this clip and i'm going to say so the next time that we're having an issue we're both going to shut up and we're just going to figure out how to do this without speaking to one another, because maybe we'll produce some better results. Or if not, yeah, I think you've actually
0: that's, that's nailed it. I think that's actually the first starting point for any, any of these things. Let's start by doing this without speaking. <laughs> then let's see how far we get. Maybe sit, you know, maybe go back a little bit, apply the judgment equation. Look at the data, apply the judgment equation. And go back and see if we can continue.
1: This this podcast is definitely going to give me a whole new outlook on how I approach things, and I'm 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 taking pages out of your book to make sure that I actually do change the way that I look at the world. Because in 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 its form, that's kind of the the what the book is about. The ten equations mm. that rule the world is how it, it is. It is a self help book. Am I am I wrong in saying that?
0: You're you're absolutely right. I mean, I think there's there's different parts of it. So definitely that it's there. It's a self help book. It's also describing how people are using this mathematics, how this how this ten came to rule the world in social media, in finance, and he's trying to take the lessons they've learned and make us into better people. So yeah, it's, it's a self book help in that. And then you'll learn a little bit of maths. I think is is I do want to say there are a few equations in there. You've probably noticed that. Yes, I have. And I wanted there to be I wanted there to be some of the equations. You know, I wanted the, the maths to be there so you can see it. But what I try and do is I, I work around it and describe the thinking that we had with those different equations rather than expecting you to you know solve them or something like that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it felt like that math 101 class that I was in in college that I had so much trouble in, but it was well prepared. If she had written down these words and taken me through it like you did, I mm. might have passed that class. Who knows? <laughs> uh, probably not. It was my freshman year of college. So let's not uh, make any assumptions about how, Uh, focused I was, but um, you know, uh, I I really did enjoy that aspect of it. And I think it's important to see that there is an equation here because you can, you can use words to explain all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, if you write it down in that purely mathematical form where somebody can look at it and quantify, all right, these words mean this thing. it, Mm. It helped me kind of understand it better. And, and like I said, I just, I think the way that you, uh, kind of build these stories around things that happen in the real world or things that we could relate to in life is crucial because this math is frankly way above my head, but I was able to understand it. And and that's one of the reasons that I was intrigued to talk to you. And And after watching some videos and uh, on CNBC's power lunch, I, I watched that video as well. I just thought, you know what? I, I, I am leagues and bounds behind this person as an intellectual, but I think I can talk to him. I really do. And it's been, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun because you are even more relatable than I expected. And, and I, I just really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, the simple man and kind of, you know, shake it into me a little bit because I, I, I want to learn something every day. And one of the fun mm. parts about this podcast, I always say I get to talk to people that do really cool stuff and and you might be at the epitome of that, uh, of that group. so, <laughs> I just really appreciate you taking the time and um, the 10 equations that rule the world and how you can use them too, will be out August 24th. Uh, please go buy it. Is there anything else you're working on that we should be looking forward to that you can actually talk about? I know sometimes well, you know what, I, I,
0: I am writing another book, but it's a, it's a secret just now. So I'm not going to say too much about that. Let's con- let's concentrate on this one. Okay. I think, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I, I, the work continues in the sense, in the sense of applying maths in different interesting projects there that the work definitely continues but All just right. now it's the, the focus is on the book and i, I just realized I, I saw that you're wrapping up i just realized that now has gone that's that was a lot of fun actually i didn't even realize myself <laughs> that uh, we've been speaking for so long
1: <laughs> it's one of the reasons that i love doing the the man room podcast is because i i, I started this whole thing as if you were just going to come in and and really the only thing that is man room about it is that's what my wife and i have always called this room i keep my drum set <laughs> and my beer fridge and my blood pressure cuff up here and that's just kind of my little space, you know? Uh, so, uh, yeah. but uh, everybody is welcome. And uh, you are, you're the first uh, mathematician that we've had on, the second author. Uh, we, we interview a lot of comedians, musicians, filmmakers, and stuff like that. So... Um, but I'm always looking to to expand those horizons and my biggest hope is that when an hour has passed, you don't feel like you've been here for an hour. That's honestly no, well, that's something. That's definitely that... the case in
0: my case. Thank you very much. Great. It's well really
1: David Sumter, I really appreciate you taking the time. Our very first international guest here on the man room. Go buy the book, August 24th, the 10 equations that rule the world and how you can use them too. And also check out Soccer Maddox if you're looking for uh, a little bit more of that uh, of that beautiful sport that is soccer or, or football as, as we know it over in Europe. Um, that's the Man Room Podcast. We've already talked about what you thought about it. Thank you so much, man. That's all I can say. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good one.
0: Thanks. For
1: listening
0: and the and. No transmission. No transmission. <laughs>